all the verses messed us up. Can we pray before we sit down? Well, you don't, we can sit down. Father God, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that you have given us and seen fit to give us yet one more day to serve you. Lord, we repent of the ways that we have wasted it, and we pray that you would inspire us to do better tomorrow, that you would fill us, that you would lead us, that you would uh, give us your spirit, that we would know and understand your good and perfect will for our lives. Be with us as we study your word tonight, that it would fill us with your Holy Spirit and with your guidance and above all with your love. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Okay, now you can sit down. Or you can keep standing, whatever you want to do. I'm, there's no camera, so do you. Okay. Well, tonight we are going to study Daniel. All 12 chapters. No. Um, <laughs> in... In less, than, in, in less than 45 minutes. Okay. We are, is, is everyone at least have a working knowledge of some of the stories in Daniel? Okay. Um, some of the things that we're going to bring out. Now, the, the history for Daniel, when, when Israel was basically taken captive by the Babylonians, the king was not able to, King Nebuchadnezzar at that time, would not be able to administrate and do everything because the larger the kingdom got, the harder it was to really administrate. And so he would rely upon those that were well-suited, well-educated, those that that were coming through. And Daniel and his three friends, uh, what what would be known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, I thought to try to try to remember, and the only one I can remember is, is Michelle, which of course is pretty easy when you have a kid named Michael, so, um, huh? Azariah and, yeah, as Azekiah, something like that, Azariah, that's it, and, Han- and Hananiah, that's it, it's, it's an, it's an open book test. You can, you can cheat. Well, Daniel was Daniel, and he became Belteshazzar. So, so it's a little interesting to, to refer to, to one by their, by their Babylonian names primarily, and then you got Daniel as Daniel. But, um, and so as they came in, these were basically men that had been <laughs> come from... Um, more affluent families, if you will. They, they were being educated. They were already in the, in the, the ways of, of God, and they're very educated beyond that. And so they were also very reliable. And so as they came in, they were being expected to, to kind of fill in the same places. And what we get in, in one of the first stories out of Daniel is that Daniel and the others are basically being told, uh, thou shalt eat the same things that everyone else is. Well, of course, what everyone else is eating is very rich and affluent foods, but it's also food that's been uh, consecrated or sacrificed to the other gods in, in Babylonian. And, of course, they were, they were not only not good for you physically, they were also spiritually unclean. And so uh, Daniel and his, and his three friends uh, 
basically stood and, and rather than coming forth, you know, forth and basically telling the king, no, I'm not going to do this and getting their heads lopped off probably, uh, they tell the, uh, the, the administrator or the, the one in charge and they said, we'll make you a deal. We will eat only, you know, water and vegetables and whatever else. In other words, all the stuff that is not, uh, that is not consecrated or dealt with in, in any of the, the gods. And we will, we'll, we'll have a test. If we are, you know, if, if we are satisfactory at that time, then you agree to let us continue doing this. And so they had what, what we call now a Daniel fast, but basically they just kept eating the, the things that were good for them rather than the, the, the wine, which would, of course would, would cloud their judgment as well as the, the food that was, that was consecrated. And of course, at the end of this time, they are not only stronger, but they are also more adept. They're, they're also uh, wiser. All of these things come out. And so Daniel and his friends find favor in the, in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar. The next one that comes down then is Nebuchadnezzar uh, basically wanting to draw all these nations together that he has he come up with. Uh, he, he basically started a religion, which, as the, the uh, notes in the Fire Bible say, is he is not the first and certainly will never be the last of some, some political figure who wants to have some religious center centered around them or to be able to have the, the, the ability to speak on behalf of God, if you will. And so, uh, let's see, Hananiah, Azariah, and Michelle um, basically say, you know, the the God of Israel says that you shall have no other gods before you, and so they basically refuse. Well, this is flying in the face, of course, of Nebuchadnezzar's own ego, if you will, and so he says, we're going to throw you in a a fire, and they say, (laughs) they they add, if you'll excuse the, the pun, they add fuel to the fire by saying, we believe that our God will save us, but even if he does not, we will not bow down to your graven image. And he says, and for that, we're going to turn the fires up even hotter. And so they throw the, the three of them in, and of course, as they're standing there, they, they look into the, into the furnace, and the furnace is so hot that they can't even get close to it, but as they are looking into the, the flames, they see these figures walking around. And one of them says to, to Nebuchadnezzar, didn't we throw three of them in? And he's like, well, yeah. He says, well, there's four of them in there now. And it was basically compared, we, have, we of course considered that this would be the, the pre-incarnate version of, of Jesus, but essentially it is, it is God's servant who is, who is with them at that time. And of course, they are not being consumed. And so they come out, and so that, that gains favor in the, in the mind of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Not before, of course, God, God uh, inflicts a lot of uh, mental illness upon him for his arrogance, and he finally comes to and when he repents of his own. Well, what we may not recognize is in Daniel, there are several kings that basically come through, including Nebuchadnezzar's own family and then others. What we get later down the line is Daniel, of course, uh, being brought in, and he is, uh, he's basically found favor in, I believe, is Darius's uh, faction as well. Now, this, if you look at, Daniel is one of the last uh, prophets that, that speaks, as, as far as chronologically, uh, with the exception of, I believe, Micah and Zechariah and, and um, the other Z. What was the other one? Zephaniah. 
Those were the only three that basically would chronologically be after. He was in the same time period as Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and in fact, in Daniel, he refers to the prophecy from Jeremiah. And uh, are we impressed so far I can remember all this? Okay. Um, I'm impressed I can remember all this at the moment. And so over a period of about 80 years or 70 years is what we're seeing this, is basically Daniel from being a young uh, a young man into being an older one is the, is the time period we see is the, the book of Daniel. Well, Daniel is a much older man by the time that Darius comes around. Darius respects him because, of course, he is, he is wise. He's able to tell, uh, tell the, the kings basically the meanings of their, uh, of, of their dreams. Uh, one of them, in fact, if, if we consider, basically is referring to the writing on the wall. Literally, there was writing on the wall, and Darius wanted that interpreted. So... Because, of course, Daniel, his, his intelligence, his, uh, his vision was always being given to God as far as who God was, was bringing this out. He never, took, uh, he never took credit for himself. He always was giving praise to God for this, always honoring what God wanted him to do, uh, very, very faithful in this along with his, with his friends. And so there comes a time when Darius basically ha- is, is tricked into uh, creating. Because, of course, when Daniel is getting favor and uh, Darius's own kind of uh, advisors who want their own power and prestige and want to get rid of this, you know, Israelite, if you will, uh, or uh, a Jew. I'm not sure what they're Hebrew. Maybe we'll call them. Um, they basically get Darius to create a... Uh, a, a decree which basically puts in this, uh, th- this, this decree that, of course, Daniel wasn't going to follow, and therefore he'd have right to be able to, to throw Daniel. And, of course, you always consider it interesting that the king's in charge of everything, right? Apparently, the, the king is only subject to one, one fallacy, one Achilles heel. Apparently, he doesn't want to lose face. And so even though it's his own decree, and he can make his own rules if he wants, he doesn't want to appear weak, and so basically he has to throw Daniel into a den of lions. And he doesn't want to, and even the next morning, Darius is not convinced, even though Daniel has basically prayed that, that this will, you know, that the, the mouths of the lions will be closed, and that all of this, that he will survive and has been confident of this. Darius is not quite so confident, and when he comes to find him the next morning and breaks the seal that's, that's over the, uh, the, the den, he calls out very tentatively, like, Daniel? <laughs> and of course, Daniel says, I'm fine, I'm here, whatever. Um, we see this in, in another place, and it, it's interesting to look at when we talk about people being in a, in a certain time and place for this. Daniel is basically a very righteous person, and if one could say that, that they don't deserve to have uh, you know, adversity come to them, Daniel is basically it. From the beginning of Daniel to the end of Daniel, Daniel is faithful. And I want to focus on, on one thought that came in. Daniel, it, it, the, the scripture says, was, tr- had trained his spirit and his mind to resist what was going to be asked of him, what was going to be done. Many of us go into adversity or we, we come with kind of an, uh, I don't want to say arrogance, but basically just an unpreparedness that we somehow can't, uh, we can't deal with adversity in our faith life because we have not prepared ourselves for it. Uh, 
In the United States, we have the unfortunate uh, disadvantage that we don't really have to be inconvenienced. We can probably go out on a street corner. We can tell people all we want about Jesus. Very few people are ever going to come unless we're causing a traffic jam or something. Most of us, if, if we went into our, our friends and family, we could say something. Now, maybe they disown us, but no one's going to you know, throw rocks at us or, or uh, you know, kill us or do anything along those lines. How many of us enjoy Christmas? Raise of hand. Okay. How many of you like Christmas lights? How many of you know who puts your Christmas lights together? Like, who assembles your Christmas lights? Not, not who puts them on your house. But who assembles your Christmas lights so that they come in that box? You ever know one that's on the back? It says, made in China. It is, it is fabricated in China by political prisoners. And who are the greatest political prisoners in the China prisons? Christians. Because it's an, it's an abrupt, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically an affront to the communist regime. It is a threat to the, to the, to the authority of the dictator. It was, it's an affront to doing that to the, to the religion at that time as well, in, in those places as well. And there are a lot of American and other, other nations pastors who basically are pastors in an underground church. Now, there are some that are pastors in, in approved churches, but basically they are approved when they register that they can bet that someone is always going to be there and that anything that they say can and will be held against them and will cause them to go to jail if at any point in time they are perceived as being against the, the Chinese Communist Party. And so, by and large... The Christian church is an underground church, which can cost them their freedom and their lives, most commonly freedom. But if, they, if it costs them their freedom, they're put in prisons, and they are the ones that basically are making the, the nice uh, Chinese lights that we get to enjoy on, on Christmas. There was a, uh, a, a church when one of these uh, Chinese missionary pastors had come, and they, they said, oh, brother, we, we are praying for, for, the, for, the, for the Christian church in China. We are praying for your efforts that all of the persecution and all of this would be, would be done away with so that, so that, you're, so that the others would, would be free to do this. And the response back from this missionary was, don't you dare. You see, because there was success in the danger of preaching the good news, knowing that there was a risk, that this was something so important, so vital, so life-altering and changing, that they would risk their own lives as missionaries in order to be able to preach that. Now, they also would find that even if they ended up in prison they were now had a captive audience as well to be able to preach that as well to those in the, in the same places. Same is true in Muslim countries. The same is true in, in others where basically it is an underground uh, church that comes through. Russia being the same way. 
There is something about suffering that we don't always understand. Now, rather than saying we should, we should encourage suffering on ourselves, the question that I want to pose to us tonight is, first of all, what is our aversion? That's the way I was looking for. Aversion to suffering. Why do we equate suffering as God being mad at us? Because let's, let's face it. When something bad happens, we think if we had been stronger, or we had been better, or we thought better, or we prayed better, or we read our Bible more, none of this would be happening. Even if we don't want to admit to it, that still comes in the back of our mind. But the question then is, if we are not made to suffer, how do we use the freedom that we have in order to benefit others? Because we have, if, if the underground church would only be able to do things in a, in a more constricted fashion, perhaps more effectively, if you will, how are we using our freedom, our ability to do this, unrestricted, unimpinged, un, un, unhampered, unhampered, to be able to, to preach the gospel? Are we using this freedom for our own comfort, or do we really consider the weight of the fact that we are able to preach a scripture that is tenable for anyone that would hear it? Life-giving, life-altering Life-changing. Did you know in Daniel, the book of Daniel is probably, now, now we can look at others and, and we, we see scholars that try to tell us, well, this points to this and this points to this. In Daniel, in the Old Testament, the entire transition of every major leader from there until the end of Christ's life is foretold down the line. The number, of, the number of, of kings that would be deposed, the number of, of ones that would be in more power than others, everything lines down accordingly to the letter. Tells of Christ's coming, the amount of time, the, the, this, the status as far as how many times this is going to come about. And then also draws the comparison into what we see in the book of Revelation of talking about the end times. So we not only have an Antichrist figure in one of the, uh, one of the, uh, the Greek generals, if you will, that basically defiles the temple and other things. I really encourage you, and I, and I know I'm skirting over a lot of this, Read the book of Daniel, and if you have the opportunity, find, a, find some notes about it and really see how significant and how accurate this book is, not only for what was a near future, but also a far future, and how it pans out. We can even see today how all of this continues to come around, and that's why the, the notes at the very beginning talking about how Nebuchadnezzar wanted to have this religion all about himself, that he is certainly not the only one that keeps drawing religion into bringing their own authority. But to get back to the, to the question, do we have an aversion to suffering for our faith? And it could be, it could be anything. Maybe it's we, we, have to, we have to spend money out of our pocket in order to, to go and minister to our friends. 
We, we can't all pull something from the church and have an, an official ministry. Are we willing to sacrifice in order for, the, for the, another person to be able to come to Christ? This kind of matches up with what, what Greg's talking about on, on Sunday. He's talking about this power shift. Do we use our own entitlement, and I, I don't want to say entitlement as a, as a negative, but the, but the fact that we have an ability to use everything that is, that is within our freedom, everything that, that is un, uh, unhampered in our lives, do we use it to make our own lives better or do we use it to make others' lives better? Now, there are some in this room that blow me away as far as what they will do to sacrifice their time, their energy, whatever, to the point that they're exhausted and need to be told, you just need to sit down and rest for a little bit of time. And you know who I'm talking to. If you think it's you, maybe it is too. But out of the book of Daniel, if we consider, are we bold enough to claim what God's word is? Are we, do we prepare our hearts and our minds to deal with the comparatively small confrontations that we come up to. You see, I find it interesting that, that Daniel and his, and his three friends were prepared. When they, when they would say, no, we will not bow down, they knew specifically why. They knew the scripture. They knew how to quote it. They knew the authority behind it. They believed it. They understood it. And they were prepared to sacrifice in order to defend it in their own lives. This is not a matter of somehow getting in someone's face and saying, you know, you're, you're in a po- opposition to God's will and he's going to strike you down or whatever. That was never in the line of, line of, of sight or the, the confrontation for Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're just easier to say. Never did they confront the king and say, you know, you're going to hell because you shouldn't be doing this. All they ever did was stand up and say, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, and this is what we are doing. They imposed nothing on anyone else, but they knew exactly why they believed, and it was important enough that that because they believed it, they would stake their lives upon it. You see, if we look up the the word believe, believe is is not a mental exercise. Believe is a bodily response. It is that we understand and we agree with and we have studied in depth and in detail so much that it becomes a part of us that we cannot do anything else except to defend what we know is to be true. I find a lot of frustration on on Facebook because I can look at certain people's posts and on one day something's quoting scripture about this and the next day they're talking about something else and, and I don't think they understand and I think it's just, a, just a, an illustration of how we very, have a very schizophrenic uh, faith life that we don't study doctrine, we don't study scripture We don't study history enough to be able to understand and to be able to incorporate so much of this in our lives 
that we can defend it in depth and in detail and be willing to sacrifice of our own comfortability and even our own lives in order to defend it. Now, it's one thing to say, you know, would you die for your faith? But the question I want to pose today is, are we willing to live for that? Are we willing to live our lives in such a way that is sacrificial, that is detrimental perhaps to our own personal comfort, in order to be able to bring the gospel, to bring the good news that we know into the lives of others who need it? Are we willing to sacrifice our egos, our perceptions? Are we willing to to sacrifice the time and the energy necessary to be able to study and to, to meditate upon the scripture to the degree that we live out what, what Greg was talking about on Sunday, be, being about that, that we love God with our whole heart, our whole mind, and our whole, whole body, our whole being, if you, to sum it up. Are we willing to sacrifice in order for us to be able to have that kind of relationship with God, which then in response we can have a relationship with others in the way that God wants to have a relationship with them. In a way that will save because we understand the will of God, the mind of God, the spirit of God so intimately that it has the same, the same effect that Jesus had coming into Samaritan villages and converting whole numbers of people who had, who had nothing to do with him before. To be able to go into synagogues and to, to be able to, to bring disciples out who were basically being told something contradictory from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Do we have the willingness to study and to have such an intimate relationship with God that when we see and we hear about those who are causing ill and problems, in other words, causing an obstacle to faith for others within the church, that we have the understanding to be able to not only confront those that are, in, that are steeped in sin of their own ego because of what they say, but also able to turn back around to those that they are abusing and to be able to nurture and bring them into faith. Are we willing to have such an intimate relationship to know the mind of God that we can do nothing else except live and breathe and walk in the way that Christ would. We often look at the idea of perfection, and I, if, you, if you study enough of the, the things that I've written, perfection is not about doing everything right. Like on a on a daily basis, it's not about that every everyone that 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 does the the uh, the soundboard in the back that everything is is perfectly done and that nothing goes wrong and that everyone sounds perfect and, and knows knows everything. It's it's not about a level of knowledge about practical things. It is the perfection of growing and being in God's spirit so intimately that we have allowed his grace to transform us into his own likeness. And I think it's something we're afraid of. 
because we're afraid, well, what if I can't do it? And one of the simplest things, and that was, that was one of the ordination questions, was do you believe you're going on to perfection? Do you believe you will reach it in this lifetime? The idea was, if, if we simply put that God's version of love, if we simply said, Could you, would, do you believe that you, can, that you will strive towards being perfected in love, could you do it? Could you and I do it? If love was the, was the only measure... And I would advocate that is really the only measure because everything else comes from it. That's, that's why Jesus says that all the, all the laws and the prophet hang on that, you, that, you shall, that the, the Lord God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your spirit. And the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That all of that hangs on that because love, in its truest sense, is the perfection that God has that his entire character is hinged upon that, even in the judgment and the mercy and everything else that God does, his entire being is about being perfect in love, in an unconditional stance. Is that something attainable in our minds that we could strive to be that? So here's the, here's the interactive part. What is the obstacle to you being perfected in love right now? I'll go first. One of the biggest obstacles for me to being perfected in love is when a spirit of unforgiveness comes about. Because in, in, those, in those times, I refuse to love someone who has done something wrong, or done, especially done something wrong to me, or to someone else that I love. That a spirit of unforgiveness is I refuse to see them in the same way that God sees them. What are obstacles that we have personally? And I think really when it, when it comes down to it, the only way we will ever grow is if we acknowledge the places where we have failed. One of the, the retreats that I had gone through, the, the after we would have groups and we would meet in, in different places, because we would all come from, from all over the state, but we would go back in order to have support groups, if you will. And the support group was essentially that we would come together and acknowledge, you know, where have you, where have you succeeded? You know, where, where have you seen God's blessings? Where have, you, where have you succeeded this week? Okay, where have you failed? And I think one of the, one of the greatest things we miss out on a regular basis, even as, especially in the, in the faith life that we have, is we don't confess where we have failed. We just kind of gloss it over. Say, well, well, we'll just be better in this, and we'll gloss over something else. It's sort of like if we, if we make the, the, the living room and the, and the kitchen and the dining room look spick and span, maybe no one will notice that the bathroom is completely trashed. Okay, the bathroom would have to be nice and spick and span too. But we, t- we take everything out and we, and we leave everyone out of the bedrooms. Or we leave everyone out of the closets. 
Don't, no, don't open the closet. Where are the places that we have failed? Maybe, maybe not now. What are, what, are, what are places that you have failed before that, that God convicted you of that, that brought you back into an increased relationship with him? There was one more thought out of Daniel I wanted to, to bring up. If we look at the book of Daniel, we, we see that, of course, the nation of Israel is in exile in Babylon. They've been, they've been taken captive. They've been taken out of their homes, whatever else. Even in the fact that Daniel references the fact, and we, we understand the fact, that in the Assyrian uh, country, kingdom, their king was releasing people to go back into Israel. That's where we get the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the the rebuilding of the temple and then the rebuilding of the wall. That even in this time, the Babylonian and what would become the the Assyrian um, would basically be somewhere where they were constantly in captivity. Daniel, towards the end speaks of this basically, and he, he intercedes. One of the greatest things of, of intercession is being able to offer up prayers on behalf of, fall- of, of failings that you personally do not have. In a, in a church, it means that we can acknowledge, even though we are doing things right, that we are willing to acknowledge that we are part of a whole and we seek to be part of the solution, part of the remedy. And what it means is that, that each one of us individually has to accept that we are part of the problem so long as the problem still exists. But I want you to consider Daniel is, if, if you could put the word in. Daniel and his three friends are flawless. They are well studied. They are well spirited. They are confident in God's will. They are confident in his word, in his law. They are faithful. They are resolute. They do not deserve to be in captivity, but they are. And they continue to use the opportunity that they have in order to stay faithful while also being of service. The book of Daniel, we talked about the the prophecies that that comes in the 8th chapter and on. To read through that is to understand that even when we are in difficult times, God can still use us for a long-term effect. Daniel never saw the end result. Now, we could say Daniel's like, like Moses, then he never saw the promised land. But Daniel was, was not Moses in, in being unfaithful and got himself basically banned for the promised land. And, okay, you can look over there. You can physically see it. There you go. Now, go off and die. Daniel was resolute in seeking the mind of God, interceding for his nation, interceding for the people, and God revealed long-term, even into our lifetime now, prophecies, because Daniel was faithful. 
I think one of the greatest challenges we can, we can absorb is that even if things do not come about the way that we want them to be, that is no excuse to not be faithful because God will still use us in mighty, mighty ways. Even when we are unable to stand because we have prayed so hard, we have studied so hard, we have done everything that we possibly could to move the will of God in order to change the entire surrounding that we find ourselves in, even if nothing else changes, if you, if you go back to, uh, to, to, to the threes resolution, I believe that God is going to move in mighty ways. Say that with me. I believe God is going to move in mighty ways here. But, no, but, even if he doesn't, I will remain faithful. I will still study his word. I will still meditate upon him. I will still write it on my heart. I will hide it deep so that when I need it, when God needs me to use it, it is there. I find one of the, the greatest challenges to my, to my own faith personally, aside from the fact of doing this every other week, is the fact that, that the more that I study scriptures that I probably didn't consider significant six months ago are so life-changing I, I don't have to pick out specific scriptures so that I can, you know, find it on a bookmark or whatever else. I can read through the Old Testament and find God's will speaking to me because of that knowledge and that understanding and writing it upon my heart to understand what David and Ezekiel and, and Daniel and Amos and all the others came in to know what God's will, what God's working was in their life and to see that if, if, the, if the scripture is universal... We believe in the, uh, the inerrant word of God and that it is universally necessary, it is universally relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago, as it was 4,500, 600, 10,000 years ago. It is relevant today. That means that we can read any part of it and God will speak. That is the kind of intimacy that I want with God and that is the... That is the I guess if, if I were to testify, that is the thing that God continually changes in my life or uses change is the fact that his word is truly shining that light. As, as the, the psalm said, the, 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 thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Things are so much clearer, so much crisper in reading and studying and meditating and cherishing and loving his word, his letter to you and I. I'll answer this, that with this. Um, have any of you pondered long enough what my initials are? Because I got tired of BSing my way through. I got tired of BSing my way through ministry, BSing my way through conversations, BSing my way through relationships, 
BSing my way through sermons, BSing my way through life, BSing my way through ministry. You remember several weeks ago when, when Bill was talking about fasting? Fasting for, you know, over, over lunch, something else. The, the, the fast that I took on, because I was already fasting lunch and those types of things, was the fact that there was a lot of unrest in my life personally. And I, and I understood and was, uh, was uh, unrepentant for it at the time that it was a lot of Facebook. And it wasn't really anything specific. It was just the fact that when you're scrolling through, do you know how many messages I can go through in about a 45-minute time if no one interrupts me? There are so many goofed-up messages. I mean, really. Whether it was the news, whether it's someone else's interpretation, maybe it's someone's misinterpretation, whatever else it was. And so what I decided to fast, what I was going to fast, was that Facebook. And so if I used the phone, I was going to look up something that was a, a seminar from, from someone that was, that was dealing with some spiritual, spiritual uh, realization. Uh, one of them, I got in eight weeks worth of, of that in eight hours with, with Tony Evans, and it like overflowed. I would have liked to have just exploded just from that one. But then to be able to read through the scriptures as well, what would we, what would our lives, what would our spirits look like if we stopped the things that were bringing us anxiety and unrest and started studying the word of God that wants to breathe his spirit, his life, his love, his, his will into our lives. We have to, as, as Paul says, take captive every thought. And if we understand that taking that captive means that we are going to put it in prison and we're going to set it off away so that it no longer has influence over us, that's the captive. Don't, don't bring it closer to yourself and, and hold it there and manipulate it and play with it and whatever else. Throw it away. Throw it to the side. And find what God's word would, would do. And it doesn't, I, there, there's, there's so many now that I'm not sure I could have enough time to read the things that I want all at the same time. But I think if we would sacrifice the things that really we shouldn't even want around us anyway, doing all of this becomes so much easier. God wants, and, and I, I know I put so much pressure on us, 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 do, 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 do. The fact is that God wants that intimate relationship with us. And that's, that's really when you look at the, the dichotomy out of, out of 1 John, it, it's the question of why do we love God? Well, we love God because God loved us, and because God loved us, we love God. 
It's a cyclical pattern. But it always comes back to the fact that God desired a relationship. As Paul said, that even while we were still steeped in sin, Christ died for us because he wanted a relationship with us. Imperfect, messed up, sinful, stupid, God wanted a relationship with us. And so if, if, we, if we don't do it because we want to have a deeper relationship with us, let us do it so that God can have a deeper relationship with us. With, uh, sorry, if we, don't, if we don't do it because we want a deeper relationship with God, let us do it because God wants to have a deeper relationship with us. And see what God will do through his word to show us his will, his power, his calm, and cast away all the rest of the garbage that, that brings, us, brings us turmoil and problems and stress. goes along with what Kelly was saying is the, those things that, that create obstacles are those, those thought processes, those things to, to really take, take captive that and, and cause it to obey what God's word is, what God's authority is over that, what would that be to, to cause us an entirely different spirit, an entirely different mind? If we, if we took the thoughts that we have about the, 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 our society captive, what would that look like for what we would do going into society to change things, how we would interact with different people, how we would interact with our, with our community and our neighborhoods and our city and our world and, and that. I, that that's, an, that's an excellent scripture. Not only take it captive, but, but make it obedient to Christ. Any other thoughts for the good of the congregation Samuel are so shy <laughs> let's go to God in prayer before we intercede tonight Father God we come before you with every part of our being laid bare because you know what is in our heart and our mind and our soul our very spirit Lord you have given us your son as an example you have given us your Holy Spirit as a counselor and Lord we stand before you and we ask that you would help us to make our thoughts obedient to the good counsel that you give to us through your spirit. That we would make our actions obedient to the example of your son, Jesus Christ. That our very will would be obedient to your sovereignty and your desire for an intimate relationship with us so that we might be empowered with your spirit 
and your will to bring life to those whose lives are in darkness and steeped in death and heading toward hell, that they might be saved by your word, by your will through us. Make our will obedient to you, our minds obedient to you. And Lord, give us your word. Give us your word daily and let us not shy away from it so that you may speak to us constantly what will change us into the image that you created us to be so many thousands of years ago when you breathed your breath of life into mankind, into humankind. Lord, let us seek to have that intimacy once again that Adam enjoyed and cast away. Let us not forsake it. And let us enjoy your peace and your love and your counsel every day. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Prince of Peace, our wonderful Counselor, and the mighty God. Amen.